Today's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may be seated. Jesus refused to separate the practice of being in relationship with God from the practice of being in relationship with people. When pushed to the wall to separate this union, Jesus refused. He summarized essentially the entire Bible for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Relationships and the importance of them are also bolstered by a large body of empirical research. Science often has a way of proving what Jesus taught us over 2,000 years ago. Scores of studies show us that the quality of our closest relationships, more than any other factor, including whether or not you exercise or whether or not you smoke, determines our physical health, resistant to disease, and life expectancy. Satisfying close relationships also improve various dimensions of mental health. Healthy relationships can significantly reduce depression, anxiety disorders, addictions, and antisocial behavior, and reduce the ideation and incidence of suicide. The topic of this series is emotionally healthy relationships, but as the kitschy line, it's not you, it's me, suggests, a healthy self is imperative for healthy relationships. So I want you to picture a Venn diagram here. You are the circle on the left, and the person with whom you are in relationship, any type of relationship, is the circle on your right. The relationship you have with that person is the ring, in the center, which is to say that one half of every single one of your human relationships is you. You are the common denominator in every relationship you have. So if you want to have healthier relationships, which again is to say if you want to follow the mandate of the savior of the universe to love your neighbor and be less anxious, less depressed, and live longer, then you've got to start with the self, you've got to start with you. However, this is not a sermon about going inward and changing yourself so that you can be in relationship with others. It's about being in relationship with others as you go inward and change yourself. We're called to do both simultaneously. Oftentimes, when in the midst of an unhealthy relationship with a neighbor, coworker, roommate, romantic partner or family member, our instinct is to pathologize the other person, i.e. what's wrong with them, and not look inward and get curious about ourselves. So it's not that we need healthier people around us, it's that we all need to work on becoming healthier selves. Remember, Jesus formed a community with the small group of misfits from Galilee. They were neither spiritually nor emotionally mature. 
Peter, the point leader, had a problem with his mouth and was full of harsh contradictions. Andrew, his brother, was quiet and sheepish. James and John were given the names Sons of Thunder because they were hot-headed, aggressive, and intolerant. Philip was a skeptic and a cynic. When confronted with the problem of feeding the 5,000, he simply said, we cannot do that. Nathaniel was opinionated and prejudiced. Matthew was arguably the most hated person in Capernaum, working in a profession that abused innocent people. Thomas was pessimistic, melancholic, and mild to moderately depressed. James, son of Alphaeus, and Judas, son of James, were nobodies. The Bible says essentially nothing about them. Simon, the zealot, was a freedom fighter and a terrorist in his day. And Judas, the treasurer, he was, well, he was a loner and a thief, and he betrayed Jesus, as we know. There was clearly no prerequisite of emotional health to hang with Jesus. Most of these men, however, did have one great quality. They were willing And really, that is what Jesus asks of us, to be willing. So, are you willing? Are you willing to commit to relationships with hard-to-love people? And note, to be human is to be hard-to-love. And are you willing to look inward at your half of the Venn diagram? Note, this requires work and is often quite uncomfortable. So if yes, then doing so requires some practical tools. Because we don't just want you to think cognitively differently about yourself and relationships. We want you to do things that make a difference in your actual day. So as you enjoy coffee with friends, parent fussy children, take out the trash, work through conflict with your spouse or your roommate, navigate the complicated world of social media, cry in the bathroom, find a quiet moment to read. All these things are affected by your emotional and relational health. So if making changes requires more than just insight, but action, then let's remember two relational practices that Andrew's already preached about during this series. Stop mind reading and clarify expectations. Listen incarnationally. And today I'm going to talk about two more engage emotions, and embrace conflict. Engaging emotions and embracing conflict is very difficult to do if your half of the Venn diagram is an emotional mess. And oftentimes an emotional mess is not visible to the eye. So I was emotionally unhealthy for the majority of my 20s, but most of it lived below the surface, beyond the awareness of those in my workplace, Bible studies, home, and often even beyond my own awareness. In our more honest moments, most of us will admit that much like an iceberg, we're made up of deep layers that exist well beneath our day-to-day awareness. So if you draw your attention here, as this image shows, the 10% is above the surface represents the ways we conduct ourselves and the changes we make that people can actually see. 
So we can become friendlier, more respectful people. We attend church and participate in things more regularly. We clean up our lives by eliminating issues with drugs, alcohol, foul language. But beneath the surface can still exist a great deal of emotional unhealth, which if left unaddressed would, would facilitate behavioral change, but, but really what we're looking at and looking for is soul change, which is much deeper. Three signs of emotional unhealth that deeply affect our relationships. Three signs of emotional unhealth that deeply affect our relationships. One, ignoring difficult emotions such as anger, sadness, fear. Two, spiritualizing away conflicts. And three, denying the impact of the past on the present. Unfortunately, I've been very good at all three of these things for much of my life. And I want to express how these three things keep us from relational health, specifically our capacity and ability to engage emotions and embrace conflict. So first, ignoring negative emotions. There's an image of an emotion wheel. I use this a lot in my work with clients as a reminder of how many human emotions we are not only capable of experiencing, but we were created to experience. Please note that the majority of these emotions would be classified as negative emotions. So happy and all the emotions that flow out from that in yellow. And then we've got about half of the teal color for surprised. But the rest of that are what we would call difficult emotions. And yet, I don't know about you, but I feel like circa 92 to 95% of the time I need to embody and express the emotions in yellow. I need to do that in order to maintain my reputation as a positive and pleasant person. I need to do that to get things done as efficiently and successfully as possible without emotions holding me back. Those are just two of the many reasons that we avoid difficult emotions. In our culture, most of the emotions in this wheel remain largely unseen, unwanted, and unexpressed. And in many Christian circles, repressing or disavowing authentic emotion is considered a virtue or perhaps even a gift of the Holy Spirit. Denying anger, ignoring pain, glossing over depression, numbing loneliness, and pushing through doubt are not only considered normal, but actually noble and virtuous ways of living out a spiritual life. We lean into scriptures like, do not be anxious about anything, Philippians 4, 6, and do not fear, Isaiah 41, 10, and the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. Now, I am not saying that our feelings should be our true north. But the repression or denial of our authentic human emotions is not the model we find in Jesus. Jesus freely expressed his emotions without shame and without embarrassment. If you direct your attention to the following scriptures listed on the screen, these show that Jesus was emotional. He shed tears. He was filled with joy. 
He felt overwhelmed with grief. He was angry and distressed. He was sorrowful and troubled. His heart was moved with compassion. He expressed amazement. Jesus did not ignore his emotions, and neither should we. Second, spiritualizing away conflict. Contention is everywhere. In our nation, our classrooms, our neighborhoods, our homes, perhaps the most destructive myth alive in Christian community today is the belief that smoothing over disagreements is part of what it means to follow Jesus. For this reason, churches, ministry teams, denominations, and communities continue to experience the pain of unresolved conflicts and the presence of what I like to call lumpy carpets from years of sweeping things under the rug. Very, very few of us come from families or churches in which conflicts are handled in a mature and healthy way. Most of us simply bury our tensions and then move on. Personally, I went years without doing anything to avoid, um, anything to really confront conflict, rather. I would do whatever I could to avoid conflict and keep peace in my family, in my community, in my home. I saw conflict as something that had to be averted or rectified as soon as possible. So I did what many Christians do. I lied a lot to both myself and others, pretending things were fine even when they were not fine. What do you do when faced with the tension of disagreements? Pastor and author Pete Scazzaro has come up with a brilliant list of ways to handle conflict without actually handling conflict. See if you can find yourself in one or more of the tactics on this list. Say one thing to people's faces and then another behind their backs. Make promises we have no intention of keeping. Blame, attack, give people the silent treatment, become sarcastic, give in because we're afraid of not being liked, leak our anger by sending an email containing a not-so-subtle criticism, tell only half the truth because we can't bear to hurt a friend's feelings, say yes when we really mean no, avoid and withdraw and cut off, or find an outside person with whom we can share in order to ease our anxiety. Jesus shows us that healthy Christians do not avoid conflict. His life was filled with it. He was in regular conflict with religious leaders, crowds, the disciples, and even his own family. Christ refused to spiritualize away conflict, and so should we. Third, denying the impact of the past on the present. When we come to faith in Jesus, whether as a kid, a teen, or as an adult, we are, in the dramatic language of the Bible, born again. That's John 3, 3. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes it this way. The old has gone and the new is here. These two verses, while beautiful, are sometimes misunderstood because, yes, it is true that when we come to Christ, our sins are wiped away entirely. We're given a new name, a new identity, a new life, a new hope, a new future. We are declared righteous before God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's truly a miracle. The eternal Holy God of the universe goes from being a judge to our dad. That's the great news of the gospel. 
But what we need to understand is that that doesn't mean that our past won't continue to affect our present and our future. And I think many of us who are followers of Jesus in this room know that at some level because most of us didn't experience an Ebenezer Scrooge transformation or a Saul to Paul conversion where we were altogether different immediately after coming to faith. We need to go back in order to go forward. And this can be summed up in two essential biblical truths. One, the blessings and sins of our families going back two to three generations greatly impact who we are today. And two, healthy relationships with God and others requires putting off the sinful patterns of our families of origin and relearning how to do life in God's way, in God's family. Now, when the Bible uses the word family, it refers to our entire extended family over three to four generations. So this would mean your family in the biblical sense includes your parents, all your brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-uncles, great-grandparents, and all their significant, sorry, great-uncles, great-aunts, all their significant others, going back decades and decades and decades and decades. While we are indeed affected by events and circumstances that occur in our earthly lives, our families are the most powerful group to which we belong. I'm going to say that again. Our families are the most powerful group to which we belong. Even those who left home as young adults determined to break from their family histories soon find that their family's way of doing life follows them wherever they go. What happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. And for this reason, it's common to observe certain patterns across generations, such as divorce, alcoholism, addictive behavior, sexual abuse, poor marriages, one child running off, pregnancy outside of marriage, mistrust of authority, and a severance of relationships. The list goes on. And there is biblical and scientific evidence for this. It's embodied in a psychological term called multi-generational transmission. When David murdered Uriah in order to marry Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, God declared, Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah to be your own. That's 2 Samuel 12.10. So yes, God redeemed this story by adding Jesus, the savior of the world, to the lineage of David. But family tensions, sibling rivalries, and internal strife mark David's family, his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren for generations. Family patterns from our past are played out in present relationships without us necessarily even being aware of it. But we must bring awareness to these patterns because as we know, the truth sets us free. To explore the impact of your family on your spiritual, emotional, and relational life, I highly recommend completing what's called a genogram. Genograms are a way to draw our family trees in a way that looks at information about family members and their relationships over two to three generations. So by using shapes, 
squares for males and circles for females. You can draw out a family tree and use various symbols to represent things like physical illness, mental health conditions, addictions, conflicts, and relational dynamics. I actually have an example of a genogram. It's mine. So I am Elizabeth at the bottom, second from the left, the double circles. I created this before I got married, but really there would be a line beneath me connected to my husband, Grant, and then his whole family would be on the right-hand side. Um, and yes, I am indeed seven months pregnant, so our firstborn would be beneath us, and it would be a square if we have a boy and a circle if we have a girl. We will, we will know at delivery. In seminary, I was assigned this task of making this genogram behind me. And not only did I have to make this genogram, I was required to interview all three of my siblings about their childhoods, my parents about their childhoods, all four of my grandparents about their childhoods. And because I'm extra, I even interviewed my aunts and my uncles about their childhoods. It was indeed profound. There may be a resource available at the Next Steps bar in the lobby that will walk you through how to do your own genogram, or you can also go to access this workbook at practicingtheway.org, practicingtheway.org. It will walk you through how to create your own genogram and then include some really great questions about how to get curious about your own family. Two key questions to ask yourself, whether you're you're going to do a genogram or not, are how were emotions expressed in my family growing up? How were emotions expressed in my family growing up? And how was conflict handled in my family growing up? How were emotions expressed and how was conflict dealt with? I asked my couples this in premarital counseling and couples therapy to draw awareness of the unconscious and conscious patterns that they bring into their relationship. But really, these things affect us in all of our relationships, not just our marriages. And you can dig even deeper. How were emotions expressed in my father's family when he was growing up, in my mother's? How was conflict dealt with in my mother's home? How about my father's home? A careful exploration of my siblings' childhoods, my parents' childhoods, and my grandparents' childhoods revealed to me that ignoring difficult emotions and avoiding conflict weren't just unique to me. They were deeply embedded in my family of origin. So the question then became, how can I continue to honor my family, who I love dearly, while leaning more fully into the family of Christ and what he desires for me, personally and relationally? So, a few tools for engaging emotions and embracing conflict. When you engage something, you move closer to it, preparing yourself to deal with what you uncover. I think the word engage best captures a balanced approach of scripture to the unbalanced extremes of the world around us. So it's imperative to figure out what's going on before working to either shut down or amplify the feelings that flow from our hearts. And there are four steps to doing this. Identify, 
examine, evaluate, act. The first, identify. Identify the emotion. Now, this may seem incredibly basic, but answering the question, what are you feeling, is actually the hardest step for many of us. It's like asking a blind, color, blind person what color the sky is. Because it's different than saying, I feel off, or something's up, or I just had a really bad day, or I feel really bummed out. It's actually naming the emotion or emotions. A few weeks ago, I was driving in the middle of a squall, which up until that night, I had never heard of. You all familiar with a squall? Okay. I thought it was a New England thing. Here we, here we are. I'll inform you. Um, it's a localized wind snowstorm, so intense wind and snow simultaneously, and it disrupts vision in every direction. It was like 10 p.m. on a Tuesday, and I was on my way home from a board meeting gone terribly wrong. I, I got home safely and avoid greeting my dog and my husband, went upstairs and just sat on the bedroom floor and sobbed. I was flooded with so many emotions that I could not articulate to my husband how I was feeling when he came in to ask me what was wrong. And after calming my body down, a step that is quite critical to emotional regulation is calming your body down. I literally took an emotion wheel from my purse, which when you're a therapist is a fairly normal thing, just having your purse. And I began circling what I was feeling. And I wasn't just sad or frustrated. I felt ridiculed, dismayed, disrespected, and powerless. Second, examine. Once you've observed that an emotion is present, the next step is fairly logical. Look at it, turn it around, and see what you can learn about it. Your emotions are almost always telling you something about what you are valuing, caring about, or loving. So what are they telling you? What are they saying about your relationships? What are they energizing you to do? And how is, how is your emotion affecting your ability to notice or worship God? So I sat there that night and I asked, why am I feeling this? What am I reacting to? Why is this hitting me so hard? And how are these emotions making me want to respond? I was able to acknowledge that I was totally blindsided that night. The rug was completely pulled out from beneath me in front of a whole lot of people. And the things I value, conscientiousness, communication, transparency, and follow-through, were not honored by others. I also noticed something in me, a deep desire to flee. Evaluate. The next step is to figure out what aspects of what you're feeling are good and godly, and what aspects of what you're feeling are destructive or selfish or sinful. Now, this is really difficult work because you will rarely find only positive or only negative in your emotions. So that night, I didn't need to feel bad about my desire for efficiency and honesty. I didn't need to apologize for feeling unsafe because 
all those things are, are good things that reflect God's character, right? Efficiency, honesty, safety. But I also didn't need to place all the blame on the gentleman who evoked these emotions or feel justified in my new and intense desire to leave the organization because I'd been wronged. I then asked myself, when else have I felt ridiculed, disrespected, and powerless? And reminders of my past came flooding back, and suddenly my desire to flee made sense because my flight mode was activated. Bottom line, it's okay to be upset about what upsets God. And it's okay to be glad about what pleases him. An understanding of scripture really helps with this. But don't hesitate to ask God to reveal this to you through prayer as you evaluate. And don't feel like you have to go at it alone. I spoke with two mentors and my husband, all of whom know and love the Lord, to help me evaluate my emotions and my responses. And finally, act. When you know what you're feeling, have examined what you're feeling as best you can and have decided which aspects of what you're feeling are godly, you're ready to act. And this requires discernment, after which there are many possible outcomes, but in short, you want to embrace and nurture the loves of your heart that are godly and resist the loves and actions that are not godly. So I knew my feelings were valid, but to leave the organization in the name of being blindsided and disrespected, which I was, would have meant resisting, resisting healthy peacemaking, something Jesus was all about. There would have been no real reconciliation or growth on my part or theirs, which brings me to my final point, how to embrace conflict. Matthew 5.9 reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The scripture comes directly from Jesus' mouth during the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a powerful but tragically misinterpreted verse. Most people think that Jesus calls us in this verse to be pacifiers and appeasers to ensure that nobody gets upset. So we keep the peace by ignoring difficult issues and problems or waiting until things seem stable and serene. But when we avoid conflict in order to appease people, we're not peacemakers. We're simply peacekeepers. And the verse is not, blessed are the peacekeepers. It's blessed are the peacemakers. I think I have an image here to help us remember this. We have a peacemaker, Martin Luther King Jr., on the left, godly. And then we have a peacekeeper from the Hunger Games on the right, not godly. <laughs> help you remember. Out of a desire to bring true peace, Jesus disrupted the false peace around him. The way of true peace will never come through pretending that what is wrong is right. True peacemakers love God, others, and themselves enough to disrupt false peace in order to make peace, which often requires us to embrace conflict. With lies and pretense, we can have true peace, not in Christ's kingdom. They must be exposed to the light and replaced with truth. This is a mature and loving thing to do. 
It takes knowing yourself and knowing God in order to engage in this sort of confrontation. Now, church, I may be a marriage and family therapist who literally specializes in helping people with their relational conflicts. Like, in fact, I've been trained to tell couples who come to counseling every week that a week with no fighting does not constitute a good week. All the literature shows that fighting and fighting clean in relationships is indeed healthy and important. But I need to confess that I have been an emotional infant when it comes to disrupting false peace in order to create real peace. My friends and my husband have taught me so much about this. And it's through Christian relationship that I have survived hard conversation after hard conversation and seen my relationships flourish even more because of it. Because of people who were willing to disrupt the peace within me, I was able to build peacemaking muscles of my own. So after that squall of a night and thoroughly engaging my subsequent emotions, I ended up going against every natural inclination I had to first flee the organization entirely and then to acquiesce in the name of not rocking the boat and maintaining everyone's comfort level. And I asked the two men who were in charge of the meeting that night to coffee to communicate my concerns. And these two men who also know and love Jesus were receptive, gracious, and even repentant, which made way for true reconciliation. The majority of conflicts do not stem from a difference of opinions, but from the activation of unwanted emotions and the rupture of old wounds. So this is why exploring your past, specifically your family of origin, is so critical. We present our relationships with trigger points, so like raw spots on our emotional skin that originated in relationships with our parents, our siblings, and even past romantic partners. These triggers play out in our working and intimate relationships all the time, whether we're aware of it or not. And I have become more and more aware of how my pain, subsequent emotions, and gut responses are deeply rooted in my past. And only I can be responsible for knowing and regulating my own triggers. That's no one else's job. In the Beatitudes, Jesus explains to us the characteristics we need to display if we're to engage in true peacemaking. Poverty of spirit, meekness, purity of heart, and mercy. He also follows the call to be peacemakers by stating that persecution will follow for those who commit to true peacemaking, which means it won't be easy. Your attempts at disrupting false peace with believers and non-believers may not be received or received well. There are plenty of times that a dear friend or my husband Grant came to me in hopes of having a difficult but important conversation and I was not willing to engage it out of fear or immaturity. But they didn't give up and neither should you because you never know whose peacemaking muscle you are building by following this call. That's good. So, in closing, this takes us full circle to where we began today's sermon. Love God, love your neighbor. 
Remember that you can only control what's on the left side of that Venn diagram, you. And that the more you engage your own emotionality, the more insight you'll bring to your life and your relationships, including your relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, God, have mercy on us. We are made aware of how often we look at the speck in others' eyes instead of looking at them with the eyes and heart of Christ. God, so many of us have unhealthy ways of relating that are deeply embedded in us. Would you change us? Change us, God, and make us vessels to spread mature, steady, reliable love so that people in our lives can see you and sense your goodness, sense your tenderness and your kindness. Father, would you deliver us from false peacemaking that's driven by fear or status quo? Help us to know ourselves and love well. And God, would you grow us into emotionally mature adults through the power of the Holy Spirit? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.